Welcome to the Pete on Software podcast, where we program with passion. This is the podcast that discusses technology, the business side of software, and the tech people that drive our industry. And now, here's your host, Pete Shearer. Hi, and welcome to episode 17 of the Pete on Software podcast. I'm the eponymous Pete, and I'm recording this on Friday, June 20th, 2014. Today, I want to talk about going independent. Just a few caveats I want to get out of the way first. I'm not a lawyer or an accountant, and I don't play one on TV or on podcasts. Anything I say on this episode is my own personal experience that I'm sharing. My main goal is to help you know what questions or what subjects to focus on when you do consult professionals. So a little of my story. At the end of 2011, I left a full-time position to take another full-time position starting on January 2nd, 2012 with an enterprise mobile services company as an enterprise mobile architect. That position had me traveling a lot, which was considerably more than I was led to believe, and some things at home required my increased attention there. So I was forced to make a decision. Would I go work somewhere else full-time, or would I do something that I'd consider for years and go independent? I gave it a lot of thought and I decided to take my chances. I gave a month's notice at the mobile services company and at night, I worked a lot on preparing for my company. Before I could file anything, I needed a name. As I think programmers know, naming is hard. It is hard when you're trying to name classes or projects, but even harder when you're trying to think of a name that A, represents you, B, has a .com available, C, has a Twitter handle available, D, is memorable, E, is easy to communicate and understand. I was hung up on this for a very long time. I tried name generators. I tried thinking of things that I liked and working those into the name. I love the Ohio State Buckeyes, but everyone has Buckeye this or Buckeye that in their business. I didn't want to pile on anywhere else with other names either. I also didn't want a name that would tie me to too specific of a niche or passing technology. Radio Shack's an example of someone who has an older technology in the name. Hard to sound on the cutting edge when you're pimping technology from the turn of last century. Some of the best names are nonsense words that don't mean anything until the company comes into being. Or with something like Xerox, it came from a coined word, xerography, which is from two Greek words that mean dry writing. As such, appropriating foreign words is also another popular tactic. I looked up things I was interested in or stood for in lots of languages, but none of the translations met my requirements that I listed uh, before. I eventually tried to make a nonsense word from letters uh, that meant something to me. Uh, my name came up with nothing. Eventually, I took my kids' initials, EB, ME, and LM, and rearranged them to form the word emblem. I then combined that with my number, 7. I was born on July 7th, 1977, 7777, uh, and 7 comes up a lot for me, so 7 means a lot. So it was just a no-brainer to take that word emblem, put it together with 7, make the company Emblem 7. The dot-com was available, the Twitter was available. Boom, I had a winner, I was able to move forward. My next step was to form the company. The first decision to make is how you want to organize your company. Your options are basically to be a sole proprietorship, an LLC, a C-Corp, or an S-Corp. This is really where I'm going to get into my opinion-only land. If you want to know what the best option is for you, you should ask an accountant for their opinion for you based on a tax perspective, and you should ask a lawyer what their opinion is from a legal and protection perspective. But basically, a sole proprietorship is owned and run by one individual in which there's no legal distinction between the owner and the business. The owner receives all profits and is subject to taxation specific to the business, has unlimited responsibility for all losses and debts. Every asset of the business is owned by the proprietor, and all debts of the business are the proprietors. Even though you are the business and the business is you, you can operate under a fictitious name, though, if you like. The downside to this is that you're liable for everything. If you write some code and you cost the business some losses, they can come after your home and everything. When you die, continuing your business is also crazy difficult. You can't get investors, and you can't go public on the stock exchange with a sole proprietorship. You're basically limited to being a small neighborhood business forever. On the upside, organizing is very easy and taxes are comparatively simple to work out. 
Another option is to become a C-Corp. A C-Corp is an entity that is entirely separate from its owners. C-Corps have a ton of rules and that they have to follow. You have to have meetings and minutes and file reports with the government, but they're more flexible when it comes to investment, being sold, etc. C-Corps can also get an S-Corp designation and become an S-Corp. The S-Corp is a lot more lenient, and an S-Corporation is not itself subject to income tax. Rather, shareholders of the S-Corporation are subject to tax on the prorated shares of, uh, of the income based on their prorated shares of the company. But shareholders must be private individual citizens and generally can't be other organizations. An S-Corp used to be the default for anyone starting a small company. But there is a newer form of company, comparatively newer, called a limited liability company or an LLC. LLC is a flexible form of enterprise that blends elements of partnership and corporate structures. An LLC is not a corporation, though. It is a legal form of company, and there is a distinction, that provides a limited liability to its owners in the vast majority of United States jurisdictions. A limited liability company is a hybrid business entity having certain characteristics of both a corporation and a partnership or a sole proprietorship, depending on how many owners there are. An LLC, though it's a business entity, is a type of unincorporated association and is not a corporation, again. The primary characteristic an LLC shares with a corporation is the limited liability, uh, and the primary characteristic it shares with a partnership is the availability of pass-through income taxation. It's often more flexible than a corporation. It's well-suited for companies with a single owner. LLCs have a choice of their tax regime as well. They can elect to be taxed like a sole proprietor, taxed like a partnership, taxed like, taxed like an S-Corp, or taxed like a C-Corp, as long as they would have otherwise qualified for that tax treatment if they were organized differently. Uh, that provides a lot of flexibility. Big disadvantages are, again, if you want to grow into something else. Facebook could never be what it is today if it was currently still an LLC. There are a bajillion other pros and cons to each, so you can see that asking for advice is a good idea. I knew that I'd only really be an individual consultant and maybe earn some other money from small ventures that I'd launch myself, like apps or small online product offerings, etc. I chose an LLC, and over two years later, I have not regretted it yet. You could form an LLC by filling out some paperwork and mailing it in. I did this with an LLC that I was involved with over a decade ago, and I didn't have any problem. This time, though, I used LegalZoom to try to have a little more control and understanding over the process. The big kick with LegalZoom is that they seem to have adopted a bit of the GoDaddy model, and they try to sell you on a ton of other things you don't really need on your way through their uh, application. If you're really squeamish about it, visit your local small business group or pay a trustworthy lawyer to handle it for you. There are groups like SCORE, which stands for the uh, Service Corps of Retired Executives. They're all about helping you get started and have a lot of free or low-cost events to teach you about what it takes. Here in the Columbus, Ohio area, places like the Dublin Entrepreneurial Center host events as well as have shared workspaces available to rent. I once had a free consultation with a great local lawyer that helped answer some of my questions. She had many services that she offered for a very fair rate, including partnership agreements and stuff like that. As for money, I chose to keep my bank account completely separate and track my business income and expenses with QuickBooks. It wasn't too hard to learn, and when tax time comes around, I just give my accountant a backup and she handles the rest. Easy peasy. And unless you are an accountant, have an accountant. It just makes sense. Let them keep up with every change in the tax law, and you just go make money and keep up with what you do. I wanted to set up payroll services for myself so that when taxes would work themselves out easier, uh, but due to the way I was organized, it didn't work that way. I have to write myself member draw checks whenever I want to get paid. As far as taxes, I used to always get a refund. Well, no more. The first year, I didn't pay quarterly taxes because I didn't owe the previous year. However, I kept back a lot of my income in fear of the impending danger, and I ended up owing a lot of money. But I had saved a lot of money, plus a little bit more. So I was actually happy with how things turned out, and I was able to buy a new Mac for my business with the surplus, as well as give myself a small bonus. However, now that I owed, I had to start paying quarterly taxes. That helped me manage the savings a little more, but at the end of the next year, I had done better than expected income-wise, and ended up owing another boatload of taxes. I'll be honest, I don't mind paying my fair share, but even with all of my deductions, my effective tax rate is really, really high. 
high. If you get me started in person sometime, I'll give you my entire thoughts on this, but I will say that I'm living proof that the middle class is getting squeezed proportionally unlike any other class in America. It makes me really grumpy. One of the biggest things keeping people from taking the independent pledge is insurance. Personally, I took advantage of the COBRA program for the first 18 months of my new company, which is the current limit. COBRA stands for Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, and the part we care about really is that it lets you buy your former employer's insurance at their rate. Uh, without their help, of course, they don't pay a certain percentage. You pay 100% for a time. You can have to pay up to 102% with that extra 2% being for the overhead of the management of the Cobra company. And that is what I had to pay, the full 102%. But it helps you stay insured if you ever let go from a job or if you just decide to go solo like I did. At the end of the 18 months, I contacted an independent agent and I got a quote on insurance and I didn't use Obamacare. The biggest reason was that Obamacare didn't go into effect for a few months after the end of my Cobra coverage. I will include it in my evaluation when my re-enrollment period comes up late this year. I'm not going to lie, insurance is expensive. Getting my own personal plan, I'm not able to include things like maternity care or orthodontic care. When you're alone and not part of a group, you almost never pay enough premiums to make those things worth it to the insurance company. As it is, I elected for a high deductible health plan and I maxed out my HSA health savings account contribution. My COBRA costs per month were actually more than the cost of my high deductible health plan plus funding the HSA. And the good news is, that my max out-of-pocket for my insurance for a year before the insurance pays 100% is $5,000. And the HSA max contribution is over $6,000. So I'm no, in no real danger of going broke because of a health issue. So that's good. What about getting work, finding work? I'm fortunate here. My uh, original plan was to do some 1099 contracting through a local consulting company. I interviewed with one that's very friendly to working with independents, and I was thinking about going with them. However, a former employer heard that I was going on the market and offered to contract with me directly. So I've gotten a lot of hours from them and some other hours on projects secured by another local consulting company. The key here is that you have to network and you can't be afraid to let people know that you're looking. How about invoicing? This one is tricky. At first, I thought that I'd invoice monthly. And since clients generally have 30 days to pay, that means I'd go without income for two months. I'd work a month and then I'd wait a month for the check to arrive. That two-month gap was something that actually kept me from pursuing being independent for some time. However, after I became in charge of signing off on consultant timesheets and invoices uh, with my previous company, I found that most consulting companies are actually billing weekly. And to me, that meant that I could bill weekly and not be considered crazy in the eyes of my client. That cut my potential gap way down. And since I had a good client, I was actually paid within two weeks, and that made my gap only three weeks. Since I finished working my full-time job, I actually received my final check two weeks after that, meaning that I had no gap in income since I got my first independent check a week before I was due to get paid again. My biggest hassle here was managing weekly timesheets and presenting weekly invoices to the client. But then once a invest, but then once the process is going, depositing checks every week and then writing and depositing checks back to myself as member draws in order to pay myself, since the single person LLC doesn't have a payroll, uh, is kind of a hassle. I use QuickBooks to invoice, and I have an Excel spreadsheet that I use for the timesheet. It doesn't need to be any more sophisticated than that. I haven't ever had to pursue collections against the client, so I don't have any advice there. I do have a contract with the client, but it was literally something that I got from another independent consultant friend based on a template that another independent consultant shared on the internet. It doesn't have to be complicated, but you should have a contract. I will share this piece of advice that I was given once. If you have to go to the contract, you've already lost. If you are consistently having to point out to debate minutia of your contract in order to get paid, you are not in a good situation, either due to your mismanagement of the client or a terrible client. Don't stay at a terrible client for very long. How about insurance? You should probably carry some professional insurance. It isn't that expensive, and some companies, especially the government, will require that you have some. What about your rate? This is the big one. Sometimes it's hard to find out what other independents are making because they're often scared to tell you for some reason. I actually bill a lot of different rates, and that depends on what kind of work that I'm doing. 
Don't decide that if you're making 80,000 a year that you should bill about $40 an hour. That does not cover everything and you're ignoring your hidden costs. Charge what the market will bear for the work that you're doing. It's as simple as that. Remember, you don't get paid when you don't work. Vacations cost you a lot more now. You don't get paid when you take a sick day. You don't get paid when you go when you want to go to conferences and you don't get paid in the gap between contracts. You need to cover all of that. It's not out of line to look and figure out what consultant companies are billing for someone of your skills. I can tell you right now, we're trying to bring in some consultants for a six-month gig at the client where I'm at. Clients are offering up people from anywhere from the mid-70s to the low 90s per hour. They have more overhead than you do, but if people are paying that rate for highly skilled people, then you can command that rate too. Even better, because you have lower overhead, you can undercut them a little bit if you want to because you have more room. At the same time, you might not want to play that race to the bottom game. John Sonmez has a course about marketing yourself as a developer, and he claims that right now he's charging $300 an hour for gigs, and he's turning down work. That, of course, took a lot of time and effort and work for him to do, but it's a possibility you need to consider. You have to figure out what your brand is. That's it. That's what I know. Don't be afraid to ask questions of other independents that you know, and especially don't be afraid to ask professionals like lawyers and accountants. Take advantage of local entrepreneur groups in your area. On that front, my first pick of the week this week is Michael Eaton's Going Independent Talk. He gives this at many conferences in some form or another, and he keeps things very real with the crowd. I attended his talk before I went independent, and I learned a lot. I'll have a link in the show notes to a time he talked about it on the Deep Fried Bites podcast. And if you Google Michael Eaton and Going Independent, you can find a lot more about it. My second pick of the week is John Sonmez's course. You can check it out at devcareerboost.com. He's also been on .NET Rocks and the Polymorphic Podcast talking about it, so you'll want to check those out too if you're interested. All of the links will be in the show notes. That's it for this week. You can leave me feedback on my blog at pedonsoftware.com or reach me on Twitter at pedonsoftware. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.